Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And we're switching gears, as we do from time to time, talking about some of the issues of the day as they pertain to the Jewish community, as they pertain to public affairs, not the straight-up politics that sometimes we get into, that nitty-gritty. Pleased to welcome to the show Dara Horn, award-winning author of six books, a... PhD from Harvard University. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Smithsonian Magazine, and the Jewish Review of Books, among many other publications. She is also a regular columnist for Tablet Magazine, where she also has a podcast, which also is kind of co-named together with the topic of our conversation today around the book, People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present. Uh, published in 2021. Pick it up. Definitely, you need to read this if you care about the Jewish condition and what is going on in that crazy, woke world of ours. Dara, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, there's so much to talk about in this, uh, in on these topics. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, so first and foremost, I know as everybody asks you, why did you write this book? What prompted you? What prompted you to have that title and the theme and to go along with this idea of the people love dead Jews. Uh, as a Jew myself, I, I do love dead Jews. I love living Jews too. Yes. Well, so as, as, as we, as we all do, but um, this is actually a book about uh, the role that dead Jews play in the non-Jewish world's imagination. And this is a book I was, I, I avoided writing this book for 20 years um, by I, what I mean by that is that I've, my previous five books are novels that all deal with Jewish history, text, culture, tradition, etc. Um, I have a PhD in Yiddish and Hebrew literature. Uh, these are topics I've taught in many different places. Um, and it was always really important to me to sort of, you know, write and teach about Jewish culture as being, you know, something that was like autonomous and developed on its own. And it's like, it was very important to me to never sort of like be interested in Jewish identity as being defined from the outside. Um, so I always was avoiding that topic, uh, you know, very much so, so much so that I would even ask people like when I would do events, uh, book events at, you know, public book events, I would ask people, you know, how many people here can name four concentration camps? And that's often people in a general audience can do that. And I would and then ask those same readers, how many people here can name four Yiddish writers? something a lot less people can do in Barnes and Noble. And I sort of, you know, and I would then ask people, you know, like, why do we care so much about how these people died if we really don't care how they lived? So I, you know, but what happened was I started sort of changing my point of view about this um, in 2018 when Smithsonian Magazine approached me and asked me to write a piece for them about Anne Frank. And I got that assignment and I was just full of dread because I was like, oh, gross. I really don't want to write an essay about Anne Frank. But isn't and, that the easiest essay to write? I mean, come on. Everybody writes about Anne Frank at one point in their schooling. Well, I mean, this is the problem, right? This is the problem because why is that so popular, right? And, you know, I mean, here's a person who, you know, is like a very atypical uh, victim of the Holocaust, right? I mean, 80% of the people who murdered the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers. You know, huge percent of those people were, you know, religious Jews. You know, but yet we found, like, the person who is, you know, writing in a West, speaking Western language, you know, really, you know, not particularly religious, you know, that's like, oh, she's just like you and me, right? And what I realized is there's this way that we teach about in, you know, in the broader American public where we try to teach people not to be bigoted by telling them like, oh, see, whatever group is over here, like, you know, you shouldn't hate those people because they're just like everyone else. 
And of course, the problem is that Jews spent 3,000 years not being like everyone else. And the other problem is that, you know, the Nazi project was not just about killing 6 million Jews, it was about erasing Jewish civilization. And so it's like, why are we participating in that process by sending this message that, like, you know, Jews who died in the Holocaust were, quote, human, which, you know, you know their, their humanity is apparently whatever wasn't Jewish about them. So this is sort of the problem I was diving into. Um, you know, I, I thought about turning this assignment down which would have been the normal thing to do, but I'm a writer. I'm not a normal person. So instead I kind of thought like, this is interesting. Why don't I want to take on this assignment? And that was when I remembered this news story that I had read about something that um, had happened at the Anne Frank museum in Amsterdam, right? This is this uh, museum where, you know, this is like, this is an office building that contains these rooms where she and her family and other people were hiding from the Nazis. It's now this international blockbuster museum. They get like millions of visitors a year. And there was a young Jewish man who was working at that museum in 2018, and the museum would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. He appealed this decision to the board of the museum. The board of the museum then deliberated for four months and then finally relented and let this man wear his yarmulke to work. And I, I had read that news story and I just thought, you know, four months is a very long time for the Anne Frank Museum to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. And so, you know, I mean, and then, you know, I was like, did I dream this? Like, you know, this is such a crazy news story. I went and looked it up again. And when I looked it up, I discovered that not only did it actually happen, but number two, something even stupid, equally stupid had happened at the same museum a few months earlier in 2017. It's an international museum. They've got, I don't know, 15 languages for their audio guide. And visitors had noticed something strange about the audio guide display in this museum where, you know, it says English and there's a little British flag and it says Francais and there's a little French flag and it says Espanol and there's a little Spanish flag until you get to Hebrew. Hebrew, no flag. And I was reading these news stories and I thought, you know, these are PR mishaps, but they are not mistakes. Right. And, you know, what I realized is like, you know, there is this need in the non-Jewish, you know, for the non-Jewish public for them to they're that telling these stories about dead jews requires the erasure of living ones right it's like oh the museum wanted to show the jews humanity right like the nice jews right like the dead ones not like the living ones doing you know yucky things like i don't know living in israel or practicing judaism like that's gross we don't like that right i mean it was just so transparent and so i did write this piece for smithsonian it's now the first chapter of the book and this is the source of the title of the book because the first line of that piece was people love dead jews living jews not so much right and i probably would have put this aside and then just like kind of never explored this topic again but what happened was after that that piece came out in smithsonian magazine general interest broad audience magazine in at um in one of their fall issues in 2018 a few days after that piece came out was the uh, shooting at the tree of life synagogue in pittsburgh and it was like you know within a day of that attack the new york times calls me and it's like you know basically, would you like to write about dead Jews? I mean, they didn't put it that way. Um, but, you know, what I then realized was, you know, that as I put it in the book, I became the go-to person for the emerging literary genre of shul shooting op-eds. Like, I didn't apply for this job. And, you know, and then I sort of, this sort of hit me that, like, all of my editors at these non-Jewish publications, they only wanted me to write about dead Jews, Right. Like that's when they would call me. And so I then at that point, again, thought like, well, this is uncomfortable. But then I thought, you know, the uncomfortable moments are where the story is. 
Like, that's what, like, when you're uncomfortable is when you're about to learn something. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to dive into this topic that I've avoided for 20 years. And then the result is this book. And yes, I called the book People Love Dead Jews because I want to make people uncomfortable. And if you're uncomfortable with that title, you're going to be even more uncomfortable with what you find inside the book. Right. So, wow, there's so much to comment on. I think I want to just start with a very basic idea. Let's just take it back a little bit philosophically. From times of emancipation, it's something you discuss in your various writings and discussions. Uh, so emancipation, we can argue exactly when it starts, but essentially starts with Napoleon. This whole idea of the universal versus the particular, are to Jews as an individual everything, to Jews as a nation nothing, erasure of difference. The whole thing is that, I mean, this is something that's gone on for a couple hundred years, whether the Jews have to hide their Jewishness and you know Jews in the West versus Jews in the East as far as Europe or even in uh, in Middle Eastern and Sephardic Jews also had different approaches to how they had their outdoor and indoor lives. So this is not something that's necessarily new to the scene. I guess from the, I, what you're getting to is our 2000 or the 21st century sensibilities where multiculturalism is embraced, but somehow the Jews are outside of that or in some ways are outside of that ability to show their difference because really of all because of all the bad things we've done to them we want to erase erase that difference i i well i don't know i'll let you explain it um well i would disagree with you that this dates back to the emancipation because i think it's way older than that it happens in the hanukkah story uh, okay um, oh, fair fair enough i'm doing well i'm just okay i'm just saying like from a point of view of i mean you it's ironic, the Amsterdam thing, because Amsterdam, of course, was the most tolerant city towards Jews, uh, you know, before the United States of America. I mean, that's, you know, the Dutch were the, were known as the most tolerant, um, you know, and it's, it's why it's, you know, their Dutch has a history of tolerance. And then, of course, you have this approach of it. But yes, I agree with you. It does go back to the Hanukkah story. So I stand corrected. Yes. Well, so I mean, and what I, what I mean specifically that, and this is something I talk about in the book, is in the book, I have this sort of discussion where I talk about um, what I call this sort of two forms of anti-Semitism. One is Purim anti-Semitism. The other is Hanukkah anti-Semitism. And I love that for this audience, I don't have to like sit here and take five minutes explaining what those things are. Um, but, you know, Purim anti-Semitism being this sort of like, there's a big bad guy who's like, kill all the Jews, right? Like, it's not hard to understand. Um, but the thing about Hanukkah anti-Semitism is that, like, there's no point in the Hanukkah story where they're like, kill all the Jews, right? Like, it doesn't come up. Like, that's not the goal, right? The goal is still to destroy Jewish civilization, to erase Jewish civilization, but like the way they they do that is by erasing the, and destroying the culture, right? Like it's not necessarily about killing people, except when people refuse to comply, right? And so that's why you know I give that example in the book of um, you know after the you know Antiochus's regime takes over you know uh, takes takes over Judea, they they build a gymnasium in Jerusalem, right? And then they they recruited teenage jewish boys to play in these greek games and you know if you've ever been to an art museum you know that you know greek athletics were played in the nude and these boys actually had their circumcisions reversed to participate i mean i don't even want to know how that was possible in the ancient world or even, I, I don't even want to think about that but like what's interesting to me about that is like that was at a point like that's before like later you have like decrees where they outlaw brit law and all those this is before that right and so this is sort of you know there's the thing about Hanukkah anti-Semitism is that it requires Jews to erase themselves, 
right? And that takes different forms in different cultures depending on what is, um, you know, whatever is considered uncool in that culture, right? So that's an example that I give from ancient times. In the book, I give another example um, from the Soviet era. Um, and early in the Soviet era, in the Bolshevik era, the 1920s, the Bolsheviks wanted to get all the, you know, the, the Jewish masses on their side in the former Russian Empire. And so they, they created these Jewish sections of the Communist Party, whose goal was to, like, you know, spread Bolshevik propaganda among the Jews. And the, their slogan was, we are not anti-Semitic. We are just, wait for it, anti-Zionist, right? And, you know, so, of course, in the process of not being anti-Semitic and just being anti-Zionist, they managed to persecute, murder, and torture and imprison thousands and thousands of Jews. And then they export this slogan uh, to their client later to their client states in the developing world. And then it goes to the UN and like, I mean, so like, yeah, that's like a very long history. Right. But it's sort of like this idea, like that there's this outside culture that's telling you, it's like, you can be Jewish as long as, you know, as long as it's like on our terms. Right. So it's like, whatever is not cool in our particular point of view about Jewish culture is what we're not accepting. Right. So that, that sense, that's um, that external editing to me is what I call Hanukkah anti-Semitism to what you're speaking about, about the contemporary United States and the way we think about minority culture. I do think that it's this flaw in the way we think about diversity, where it is again, sort of like imposed from the outside of like, how different are you allowed to be? And I saw this very clearly. Um, and I write about this in the book. Um, I, I, I said earlier how I became like the go-to person for the genre of shul shooting op-eds. Um, and these newspapers, you know, they called me when there was a shooting in uh, San Diego. I mean, and but what was interesting to me was, and I end the book with this, I talk about the attacks on the Hasidic community in New York and New Jersey that were happening just before the pandemic. That's when I finished the book. Unfortunately, they're still happening. Um, but, you know, I wrote about, um, you know, I wrote about the attack in Jersey City on the Satmar community that was like a it was a shooting a, a kosher grocery store um also about there was a, an attack just before the pandemic in muncie where it was a really horrific thing it was a, somebody walked into a, yeah hanukkah party with a machete and was like slashing people um i read through all the news coverage of those attacks and what i thought was really telling is that i could not find a news article about those attacks that didn't say something derogatory about the community being attacked in the process of reporting the article right um, you know, and it was things like um, the Jews you know, like gentrification the and, and, yeah, right. no, and exactly. And, it, and I'm like, you know, is there this murderous rage against gentrification? Like, are people walking into cool coffee shops with you know AK-47s and blowing away white hipsters? Because like, I haven't seen that happening. Why are we pretending that this is about gentrification? Right, and of course, the right? black nationalists who perpetrated the Jersey City, I mean attack clearly had a plan they murdered a police officer first it wasn't as if they turned around and and just kind of woke up one morning and said oh my gosh the housing prices are going up you know this was a clear attack that of a you know an organized attack which actually could have been inc much much worse but oh yeah no, absolutely. And also, like, I mean, there were all these articles about the, the attack in Muncie that were like, you know, oh, just for context, you know, there's been right. these zoning battles between Hasidic the school district, no the one... school district did it. Like, you know, like, do we normally resolve municipal disputes with a machete? Well, it... I mean, <laughs> you know, and, the, and what I realized is that these articles are sending a signal to the public. And the signal is that these people deserve it. Right. Well, it didn't fit. Right? That's it's victim blaming, right? Well, it's victim blaming, right? And, and it's something like, you know, and, and what I did was I did then at that point go, and I write about this in the book. I do, I did go back and read, and I read like all the coverage of, you know, several other hate crime attacks that had happened within the same few years. Um, you know, there was an attack on um, 
an LGBT uh, nightclub in Orlando. Orlando. Um, yeah, I read about, I read sort of all the coverage of that, um, the coverage of like, there was a Walmart shooting in El Paso that was like explicitly an, an anti-Latino attack. You know, and like, I couldn't find like news articles that were saying like, you know, well, there were these school board tensions about bilingualism in schools in El Paso, you know, and just for context, you know, there's these tensions around immigration. Like, no, nobody does that. Like, that would be victim blaming, right? That would be like, you know, if you're writing about a sexual assault and you're like, just for context, here's what this woman was wearing, right? Like, nobody does that, right? And so, and what I realized is that it is sending a signal that these people deserve it. And what they're really saying is that, you know, it's like there was this sort of outpouring of sympathy with an attack, like, in the Pittsburgh synagogue, because, you know, this is a liberal synagogue. You're like, ooh, these people, like, you know, they're just like you and me. They don't have weird hairstyles. Right. But apparently if people have weird ha- hairstyles, it's, like, totally fine to hack them with a machete. And that's what I think is really interesting, because... You know, people who are attacking the Hasidic community, like, they're not doing it because they disagree with, you know, Hasidic practice and belief, right? I mean, they're doing it because these people are visible. Because right. they, they, right, those all. are the Jews they know how to find. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, it's similar to the, 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 the attack in Dallas, right, where the this British guy is just, like, you know, wandering into, like, a shul that was near the prison where this woman was held. I mean, it's like, right. well, all, you know, all the Jews... We'll find a Jew yeah. and they'll get their other Jews to go ahead and spring this woman from prison. But they're not giving a whole lot of thought to like, you know, like, well, you know, these people were too Jewish or not Jewish enough. It's like, no, they're just like looking for whoever's identifiable. I mean, that's really all. Right. So I want to just talk for a second about the kind of what a lot of people talk about is kind of this hierarchy of victimhood out there. Um, you know that, yeah, almost half we can we can accept these attacks. We can accept anti-Semitism as this as coming from white supremacists and we can call it for what it is but when it comes from the left or when it comes from people of color uh then already there are have to be reasons because they're also victims and their victimhood has has done it i i just want to go back to something that mayor bill de blasio said in 2019 after all these attacks that we were talking about and he you know was asked he said i think the ideological movement that is anti-semitic is the right-wing movement he said and i want to be very clear the violent threat the threat that is ideological is very much from the right and he rejected that there was really any problem of anti-semitism on the left and that it and he's not alone in thinking that. We hear that over and over from many figures on the left, including some members of Congress who kind of exclude, uh, sorry, exclude their own anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, you know, from that because, of course, you know, they're victims too. Um, you know, where, where does that play in within the public discourse now? Because I think that that's what you're getting at is, you know, you're part of that, of, of the intelligentsia for lack of a better word and i don't mean that in a bad way what i'm saying is when editors call you about these things and to ask you to opine on these things do they really want your opinions about this or they really want you to follow their agenda oh no they want my opinions on this um they do and i mean it's not you know and and i think that i mean what's interesting is like they didn't call me for the quick op-ed after the attack in jersey city oh maybe because they knew what you were going to say yeah well i mean you know at that point like i kind of was like you know the things I want to say are like not what people want to hear. I kind of realized that. Um, but, you know, I think that there is um, no, I, I actually was recently, I was um, recently on the phone with uh, somebody from Vox, which is like a pretty left wing publication. Um, and it was a piece that this reporter was writing about anti-Semitism on the left. I do think now there's sort of more interest in that. I recently did an event with uh, David Badil, who's a British 
Jewish comedian. Um, and he published a book called Jews Don't Count, which is exactly about, um, it's, his book is specifically about anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Semitism in progressive circles. Um, so, you know, and I did an event with him and, you know, he and I don't agree on a lot of things, but, uh, you know, but I mean, I think that they're starting to, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that there's necessarily like a sort of, you know, that there's some an agenda being set. I think maybe the agenda set before that, like there's people are making a decision before they call me. Um, you know, I think that's true. But what I do think is true and what you're really, um, what you're getting at and certainly somebody like, you know, Bill de Blasio's comments are, you know, there's this plausible deniability that people build into conversations about anti-Semitism, which is, and this is something I talk about a lot in the book, essentially the theme of my book um, is that people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel good about themselves. And, you know, that's like a larger theme in this book. And usually that those stories require the erasure of actual Jews, right? So, and that's something that, you know, I talk about in the book in many contexts. Um, I talk about it in the context of, you know, Holocaust education. I talk about it in the context of um, Jewish heritage sites in many countries around the world that used to have Jewish communities and don't anymore. Um, as I put it in the book, you know, Jewish heritage sites, it's a... It's a great marketing term. It sounds so much better than property seized from murdered or expelled Jews, right? Like who wants to go to that? So, you know, there's these stories that are being told that are people are, that are self-flattering. Um, and part of that is the contemporary context that you refer to is the way that anti-Semitism is used a political football, right? So basically the conversation becomes about, you know, the real problem with anti-Semitism is whoever doesn't vote like me. Of course, the reality is that it's a problem everywhere. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, you know, you're sort of, you have to, and the problem is like, you know, in America, we have a two party system. So you kind of have to blind yourself to whatever is like, you know, the bad, you know, whatever the bad situation is on, you know, whatever, you know, side you want to vote for. Um, but like, you know, they're, they're, you know, you always have to sort of hold your nose and vote right in this situation, because like, it's a problem on certainly, I mean, to me, it's a problem with extremism. And that's true. I mean, that's also historically true. I mean, you had like, you know, in, in you know, pre-World you know pre -World War II Europe, you had fascism on one side and communism on the other side. Like, neither of those things were good for the Jews, right? And one is considered far right and one is considered far left. But it's like this horseshoe thing where like, you know, these extremes, you know, both end up sort of saying that like, you know, nobody like me, you know, only people like me are acceptable. Right. Right. Yeah. Only people who agree with me are acceptable. So yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's absolutely like, there's an ideological orthodoxy. That's a problem on both sides. Um, I wrote a piece for the Jewish review of books where I actually was reviewing this comedian, David Bedil's book. And one of the things I talked about is like, you know, you have these absurdities on both sides of the political spectrum that are just like, you know, you're the, like social media is awash with them. And I said like, you know, there's the right wing aversion of this absurdity, which is like, something something hashtag white genocide and then there's the left-wing version of this absurdity which is like something something hashtag palestinian genocide like neither of those two things are happening like both of those things are absurd right and so it's just sort of like you know which one of those are you willing to sort of overlook and claim is fringe and is no big deal based on who you're voting for so but you're absolutely right that like it is an active problem right um on both sides of the spectrum and you know you're more likely to encounter it one way or the other probably based on where you live honestly well it's like the democratic socialists of america there's only one country that you may not visit if you want to get their endorsement at any level whether you're a dog catcher, city councilman, congress, senator, etc. You cannot get their endorsement if you're willing to even visit Israel. And that includes if you were to go and meet with Palestinians when you're in Israel. So it's it's incredible. I mean, there's what you can visit any other. If you, if you can get to Syria, you can go to Afghanistan, you can go visit with the Taliban, but you cannot go ahead and visit Israel. 
I mean, I have, I have nothing great to say about you know extreme left politics. Like, I think I think extreme politics are a problem all over the place. Right. Um. So, yeah. I, I. I. Yes. Okay. I two things I want to go into. I. We could really talk. But I want to. Go, thing I would go add ahead, please. Context though is that like the plausible deniability, and this goes to what you just said about sort of, you know, the one country you can't visit Israel, the plausible deniability around sort of like this, we are not anti-Semitic, we're just anti-Zionist, is something I think that people are, um, you know, that that is sort of like, you do you have a lot more buy-in about, and this is maybe going to your, what you said earlier about like, you know, I'm part of this elite media or something, which, you know. I well, really no, 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 I, I did say the elite media, I said the intelligentsia, I think that people consider the things you'd say to be pretty smart, otherwise we wouldn't be talking, right? Yeah, okay. I think that that, yeah. and, then, and then even the people from the media also think the things that are pretty, are pretty smart. Oh, yeah. I write for, I mean, I write for the New York Times. I also write for the Wall Street Journal. Um, it wasn't you know, a political I mean, I like, statement. I, I, if that was... A... Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Um, but what I think is sort of interesting about this, though, is that, you know, there is there is a reluctance to sort of, you know, the, this... And I think that there's a reluctance to understand the history of, or, or just a, an ignorance of the history of this, we are not anti-Semitic, we are not, we are just anti-Zionist line. Um, and the, the long history of that, number one, just that the whole idea of like, this is anti-Zionism, it's not anti-Semitism, that it really does go back to the Bolsheviks. It was, and it's, and, and that, that's where people learned it from, because then, you know, when you talked about sort of like, you know, this movement in the developing world and other minorities, like, you know, people in like, let's say Latin America, they heard about that from, the, from the Bolsheviks, right? In other words, like, you know, once you had Soviet influence in a lot of like countries in the developing world in, you know, the, the latter half of the 20th century, um, that was where, you know, this sort of the, the anti-Zionist being sort of this, like, um, you know, this, this worldview that was associated with, you know, with communism and all that sort of kind of stuff that, that was like, there's a direct line from, Bolshevism in the 1920s and the way that they were trying to um, appeal to Jewish masses and convince them that this was a good idea. You know, there's a direct line from that to sort of like the kind of developing world, which, you know, gets you into communities with other minorities, embracing this idea of like, you know, anti-Zionism, hooray. Oh, it's not anti-Semitism, right? So like that's, that's a, there is a historical background to that particular it didn't line come of from thinking nowhere. on the left. Yes, on the left, that's a very particular line of thinking. But I also want to, for your listeners, to really tie that back to like the the like the Antiochus approach, right? Which is like you know like we you know we are not anti-Semitic. We just here's like X Y Z things that are whatever part of Jewish culture that's not cool this week. Right. Okay, I right? want to like you know, we got it was, it was circumcision for for uh, for the ancient Greeks. Sure. Well, circumcision was was clearly a big deal. We know from the Torah. We know from Avraham Avinu. This is not, no question. That was the thing that sets the Jews apart, and people who want to erase it are doing that. We have two minutes left, and I know I can literally talk all day, but I want to discuss two ironies that I found particularly interesting. One is Laura Hobson, the author of the Gentleman's Agreement, which is yeah. a movie that introduced a lot of people to genteel anti-Semitism. But she herself, uh, that you pointed out, that I didn't know, that she was offered the Jewish Book Award and she declined to take it. She didn't want to have a Jewish book and she didn't want to be a Jewish writer. And the other one is Judah Benjamin, the the Secretary of State, Secretary of War, the great hero of the Confederacy. And not him as a, as a person, but I guess the idea that he had this monument to him in Charlotte, North Carolina, that was dedicated by the synagogues of Charlotte, North Carolina in his honor. Can we, can you discuss both in about a minute and a half? 
<laughs> oh gosh, that's tough. Um, it's a lot of historical background. So, um, well, so Laura Hobson was an American Jewish writer. Her parents were Yiddish writers. They like one. Her father was one of the founders of the Forward. Her mother was a Yiddish columnist for a, a Jewish women's publication. Um, so you know, and she was an American writer. She used this non. She, her whole career, she used non-Jewish names. Her last original last name was. Um, I'm going to get this wrong. Um, Zemeckin. I'm going to. The Mexican, thank you. Um, yeah, her, but like you know, she you know managed to use like many different non-Jewish sounding last names. Um, you know, and she wrote this book, Gentlemen's Agreement, which was made into this Hollywood blockbuster that like swept the Oscars in 1947, um, starring Gregory Peck as this uh, you know journalist who poses as a Jew to see you know to expose like as you said this like genteel kind of country club anti-Semitism. What's amazing is that like he does that, and the message of that movie is like, oh, we shouldn't hate Jews because Jews are just like everyone else. You know, Jews are like, you know, you know, sexy Gregory Peck, right? I mean, there's like nobody in, there's no like anybody. You couldn't possibly know the difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. Right, exactly. Like, you know, the reason. Kind of like Whoopi Goldberg said a couple weeks ago, right? So. Yeah, man's in humanity to man. Exactly. So, so I mean, you know, Laura Hobson, really, you know, she did the world a great service by with this novel because it really was a social protest novel. There really was this problem with, you know, this anti-Semitism in American life that she really blew open. So all credit to her. But she was, in a sense, she was still living in that world. And so that's why, yes, she was offered the National Jewish Book Award, turned it down because she's like, I'm not a Jewish writer. I'm an American writer. As if there were a contrast, a, a conflict between those two things. I- ironic. Say this Yes, I say this myself as a three-time National Jewish Book Award winner. Um, so that award still exists, um, you know, and it would never occur to me to be like, oh, this makes me not an American writer. I mean, like, it's actually an American award. So, um, but what you see there is like what she was fighting against. She was embedded in that world that she was, in a sense, trying to break out of with the story. So um, Judah Benjamin, even more embedded in that world. I mean, this is the, he's, he was the, like you said, Secretary of State of the Confederacy. This is a Sephardic Jewish man um, who, I mean, like, he bought a plantation to like, like, you know, I mean, that was almost like a prerequisite for being a senator from Louisiana. Um, I mean, yeah, he was like basically running the Confederacy, um, you know, and then what? Yes, there was uh, it, it was part of this sort of like whole controversy we've had in recent years about monuments, uh, you know, Confederate monuments. There is a monument to Judah Benjamin in North Carolina that was, as you say, paid for by the Jewish community of Charlotte, North Carolina in 1948. Celebrating, the of course, we, the, the great Jew of, of, of the, the South. The accomplishment of this Jew of the, the Confederacy. But, you know, it was a fraud. That was a fraught thing from the beginning because, you know, they were the United Daughters of the Confederacy approached the Jewish community to be like, can you pay for this monument? And like, why did they do that? I mean, because they're kind of like, oh, we heard that Jews have money and we want some. I mean, there's like the totally open cynicism there, totally open anti-Semitic stereotypes that the Daughters of the Confederacy were using. Then what happens is somebody in the Daughters of the Confederacy objects to this and is like, oh, actually, you know, Jews aren't really white. You know, like we should, you know, dump this monument but you know and then there's this whole debate over it the the daughters of the confederacy try to get rid of this monument but it was literally already carved in stone and then the jews get wind of this the jews who have paid for this monument in you know these two synagogues that that put up the money for it they hear that like the confederate these daughters their daughters of the confederacy are now trying to get rid of the monument they get all offended they're like we want to pull out of this we don't want anything to do with it but they had already spent the money it's already carved in stone they're installing the monument nobody will speak 
You know, the Jewish community refuses to speak. The Daughters of the Confederacy refuses to speak. And it's just sitting there. And then the Jewish community keeps trying to get rid of this monument. But, you know, the whole reason we have this Confederate monument controversy in this country is because there are laws in these southern states that you can't remove the monument or whatever. You know, and then in 2020, during the, you know, these, like, Black Lives Matter protest movements, um, you know, the, the rabbis of these two congregations that still exist that had paid for this monument back in 1947 or 48 were like, you know, maybe now we can get rid of this monument, right? And it's sort of interesting when you look at like sort of, you know, originally it was like the Jewish community wanted to support this monument, you know, because they wanted to be like on the goods, you know, on the side of these daughters of the Confederacy, you know, and then in 2020, the Jewish community wants to get rid of this monument. You know, again, it's sort of like, it's, you know, you part, it's, you know, there's some social currency involved in each of these cases, um, you know, and what's interesting is, you know, and ultimately what happened was like somebody vandalized the monument and then they got rid of it because it was vandalized. Ah. Um, yeah. They found so a smart like, person you know, to go ahead and uh, go ahead and take care of the problem. But uh, yes, we are actually out of time. Uh, I hope to do a part two sometime in the future. This was a great conversation. The book is "People Love Dead Jews" from Dara Horn, a uh, writer for multiple publications, author of six books. Thank you so much for joining us for this enlightening discussion. And that's it for this week here on Spin Glass here on the Nachum Seagull Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week. Thank you.